Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up This is the Church Politics Podcast Where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview We're not trying to be conservative or progressive We're trying to be Christian in the public square and I'm black as heaven I'm made in God's image Nobody can change my settings Amen. Hey man, cut off my knees And put an end to my search It's easy to sell your soul When you don't know what it's worth Would you know good, Ann Camp? You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast With Justin Gimney, A.K.A. Bishop Cooper's grandson And the Windy City representative The baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line My play cousin The right reverend Christopher Butler Chris, we've been off for two weeks. You know, schedules have been busy. You know, Resurrection Sunday, all that stuff. Um, no excuses. You know, we just got busy. We hate to leave y'all without an episode for so long. But, Chris, there's been so many things that have happened in between that time. I can't tell you how many people hit us up on social media and other spaces just to say, man, where are y'all at? Uh, because there's just so much going on, man. So it has been hard to be away for this long. But we are back. We have, you know, usually we cover about three issues, Chris, um, per episode. This time we're going to do more than that. And so they'll be a little shorter, but we're going to try to cover more issues just because so much has happened. We appreciate y'all. Rarely do we leave you without an episode for two weeks, but hopefully uh, the wait is going to be worth it. Chris, how you been feeling, man? Uh, I know you're on your way getting ready to come to Atlanta for the Heirs of Action event of uh, this Thursday. But how is your city treating you, brother? Hey, a lot has happened in this city as well um, over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I'll, I'll echo the the apology, but uh, it, it has been crazy busy. And I, I think I can say that we have both been involved in important things, Resurrection Sunday, and also cooking up something uh, that I think we're going to spend some time on later that is happening in Atlanta that is going to be very exciting for our movement. So I think as we roll those things out, it'll hopefully make up a little bit for uh, the time away. Yeah, I mean, we've been busy for good reason, right? We haven't just been uh, twiddling our thumbs. Uh, as Chris mentioned, we have the Heirs of Action event coming up this Thursday in Atlanta. And we'll, we're going to talk a little bit more about it. But I'll say this even at the beginning. If you live in the Atlanta area, if you live in Birmingham or Chattanooga or you know somewhere close in the Carolinas, you need to be at this event. Uh, this is by far, I think, the most consequential event that the Ann campaign has hosted so far or been a part of so far. So make sure that you get there. It's, it's at 7 o'clock uh, p.m. at Ray of Hope Church this Thursday, April 13th. Make sure you are there, all right? We're going to talk a little bit more more about it later, but just make sure that you get there. Some of your favorite uh, folks from Lecrae, Dr. Charlie Dates, Lisa Fields, Bishop Claude Alexander, the list goes on and on, but we need you to be there. Before we get into our episode, though, there's a few things I want to remind you about. Number one is the docu-series. So as you know, how I got over the docu-series about the role that the authority of Scripture played in the black church, the first three episodes are up on the website. So if you go to the website, you register real quick, you will be able to watch those videos uh, whenever you want to. And we have gotten some really good reviews on that. So make sure you check that How I Got Over uh, docu-series out. It is legit. Uh, 
so much going on, Chris, but we, we might as we as we always do. Uh, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. But I'm ready to get into it. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And let's start off with with, with the word real quick. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's quite a thought. The Lord is close to those. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. That's Psalm uh, 34, uh, verses 17 through 18. Chris, as you well know, a couple weeks ago, um, it sounds like after months of planning, a 28-year-old biological woman who was identifying as a trans man walked onto the campus of the Covenant School, which is a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee, I think Green Hills to be exact. And this person murdered six people uh, on that campus. And I want to start out today, if you don't mind, Chris, just by saying their names. We have Evelyn uh, Dikos, who was nine years old, Mike Hill, who was 61, William Kinney, another nine-year-old, Catherine Kuntz, 60 years old, Cynthia Peak, 61 years old, and Haley Scruggs, nine years old. Chris, you know, I myself have a nine-year-old, and upon hearing this story, it just shook me. Uh, it is hard to imagine the feeling that you must have if your child went to that school, but even more so finding out that your child was one of the ones that was lost in this very wicked moment. I mean, this is the definition of cold-blooded murder, um, a type of wickedness that we just see too often in this country. Uh, now, the assailant, who was a former student at the school, as I understand it, was killed by police at the scene of the crime. Uh, the motive has not been revealed, but as I understand it, there is a suicide note uh, that has yet to be released. And there's a little bit of controversy over that. Unsurprisingly, though, Chris, um, before all the facts of this case even came out and all the facts still aren't out, um, as is, I guess, our custom nowadays, people started placing their narratives over this incomplete story. Right. So before we even got a chance to mourn, uh, it became a partisan and tribal issue. Conservatives saying that it obviously was a mental health issue issue, and that was to blame. Progressives saying that it was squarely about guns and some predicting that this could end in violence against uh, trans people. And I don't know that any of those points are wrong. But I would say a lot of what I saw, at least when it comes to the hot takes that were on social media and elsewhere, the tone and approach certainly wasn't conducive to really finding solutions or even knowing did we like the fight or did we like the or did we want to find the solutions more? Sometimes it's hard to tell. tell. Sometimes it seems like we like the fight and like to be able to paint the other side in certain ways. Uh, what I will say about this issue, and we said it over and over again, is that we definitely need sensible gun legislation all over this country. The 
ideological fights and the pride and the defenses that go into this whole thing are really holding us back and exposing people to these kind of actions. Because someone in this mental state should have never been able to go to what, you know, five different gun stores and get guns. We have a gun problem. We also have a mental health problem. And which may be the scariest part about it, we there is a spirit of violence that has been plaguing this nation for far too long. And so absolutely, there must be policy responses to this. But for those of us that know, also know that we uh, aren't fighting against flesh and blood, the church has to come together and really pray and seek God's face on this issue. Chris, go ahead. Speak into this, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, you know, just to go back, I, I think that you said something that probably was the, the first thing when I first started saying, like, the breaking news come out. Um, and, and this is totally not to, you know, I saw a lot of folks, I think, in conservative circles sort of making this particular school shooting extra, extra special because... It is that it took place in a Christian school, and I'm not trying to do that, but I do, like you, Justin, have a nine-year-old, um, and I actually do have a, uh, there's a, a school that operates in uh, the church that I lead, and my wife leads that school. So to see those nine-year-olds lose their lives, and also the head of school, it just really seemed to sit closer to me. You know, in, in some way, at I don't know. It just it, it just seems like that whole spiritual element came to the fore beyond uh, policy, which I've talked about a lot. Um, that I, I think we definitely need uh, a healthy dose of what both sides of the sort of gun gun debate bring to the table. I think we need some 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 beefed up and reasonable gun control legislation. Doesn't mean you know that we get rid of you know the whole kind of like culture of guns that we have in the United States is unique and some people like it, but we do need to have some gun control legislation. We also have a significant mental health problem, but that that spiritual problem is the one that came to the fore for me. And I think it was just because the thing sat so close to me with it happening at a Christian school, operating inside of a church with the head of school actually losing her life and, and those nine-year-olds being shot. When you have a nine-year-old and you have a school and your wife leaves the school and it's inside of a church, it just it it shakes a person, I think. It certainly did uh, for me. And so you know, I, I think that beyond the policy, which we need to talk about the policy, but I think we've talked about the policy at this point at nauseum. I think that spiritual issue is one of significant concern because I almost feel like where we are in our kind of like cultural and political moment, if we could pass gun control legislation, we wouldn't need it because it would suggest that certain things about our political culture and our sort of like public discourse had shifted in a way that would suggest that other things have begun to heal in, in our country. And so I think that you look at this shooting, you look at every time this happens, I mean, literally every time this happens in our country, people retreat to their corners, folks who want to ban guns, start talking about gun bans, folks who want to uh, protect you know, people's right to have those, you know, high powered weapons, you know, they do their thing. And, and we, we don't talk about the human cost. We don't talk about the culture of violence, you know, that we have. I'll, I'll, I'll stop with this. I, I was 
on my on my way home Easter Sunday. You know, we're celebrating the resurrection as church as that whole vibe in my house and in my day to this point. But as I was getting home on my block, um, you know, there were some kids with adults supervising them and they were like on the front lawn spray painting what I'm assuming were like toy guns, but they were like spray painting them with this silver paint to make them look more real. And I just, you know, this is cultural and spiritual um, not to negate the policy needs, but this is the church politics podcast. Um, and I think there's a unique role for the church to play in this moment. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it's interesting. How does the cultural and the spiritual interact in this, in this, right? Because we've set up this tension where we feel like if we're on one side, we can blame the other side for everything. And eventually, and let me be very clear, the person who did this is the only one responsible, right? Directly responsible for it. But how we talk to each other and how we act like the other side is responsible for everything that makes me sad or makes me frustrated, that my life would be great without it, especially in something like the transgender conversation, right? I believe in certain circles, there's a narrative that says, the thing that is stopping transgender people from being happy is Christians who disagree with them. And if those Christians weren't there, then they would be completely happy. Now, I disagree with that for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, we can even the suicide conversation. Look, suicides among children were not a phenomenon for a long time. It just wasn't a, a big thing. Not to say it never happened. But it never happened in these big numbers. But now we say, if you don't agree with me on this, then it has to happen. And, and you're the cause of it. We got to be care- very careful with those narratives, um, because as we try to f- find this out, and I'm not going to act like I'm a psychologist, but I think the history of it speaks for itself. We have to be very careful with painting a picture that says your happiness is dependent on somebody agreeing with you on something um, that if somebody disagrees with you, their language their words or just their disagreement is the same thing as violence. We've got to be careful with that because people who aren't, you know, in a good space w- when it comes to their mental health or even that are and, and and just are, you know, seeking a cause, it has an impact on that. And that's, I think, is something we can talk about on both sides. But I would, uh, uh, I think we do have to talk about the transgender issue in that when you look at what happened at, at a San Francisco University, where they basically falsely imprisoned this young lady because she disagreed with them and would they, they would not let her go until there were certain concessions made. Uh, in some other spot, you have folks viciously attacking folks who disagree with them. Now, some of these folks probably are being provocative and shouldn't be in those spaces, but you can't attack people. So what I want to make sure on the left that we don't do is create a group of people that feel justified in acting out and being violent because Others disagree with them or because they are marginalized. And we've talked about on this show many times, people with gender dysphoria have been marginalized. The church hasn't dealt with that properly. They certainly should not be uh, physically you know, bullied or anything like that. We will always stand against that. However, there's no group of people that's not responsible or is justified in acting in, in these certain ways. And I'm not saying that anybody has ne- in power has necessarily said that explicitly. 
But you start to get the feeling that that's almost the implication. And I don't even know if the Biden administration has handled this well with their messaging in that regard, because some people before we even address the issue was, oh, now we just got to talk about how the transgender community is in, um, you know, is is going to be hit with violence and all these other things. And it's like, hold up. Let's let's address the issue first instead of jumping to our narrative. So go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I I, I think that it would be you know I I'd, I'd, I'd be remiss uh, if I you know didn't bring up the fact. I mean, within hours of uh, this particular shooting, and I I still have the screenshots. Uh, I I just took screenshots of how different uh, media outlets were reporting this, and you know un- unfortunately. You know the the more kind of like left leaning uh, media outlets were aggressively holding up this idea that this was a former student of this Christian school talking about the fact that this person had been in the school, maybe didn't want to go to the school. The school certainly doesn't agree with uh, you know sort of the transgender ideology. And again, I, I will be clear: I did not see any outlet explicitly say uh, that that was causative or that it was a justification, but it, it did seem to me that those issues were being pushed forward in a way that I don't feel like we normally see when when there's a mass shooting where it was being implied that she had been or that this the, the perpetrator had been pushed towards this, right? That you know, she was in this Christian school and all this stuff happened and they were she was putting out they were smart enough not to say like you say say it explicitly, but it was kind of like hold up. First of all, the facts aren't even out. You haven't seen the suicide note. And what kind of thing is that to assume? Mm-hmm. But go ahead, Chris. Yeah, and, and, and e- even there is no justification for doing something like this, right? And in almost every case of a mass shooting, uh, there's some sort of uh, mental anguish that at least in the perspective of the person, they have been significantly wronged in some way. Uh, But this is where I think we have just crossed into this very, very dangerous place in our discourse where we have so expanded the definition of violence um, that it could even enter into one's mind that this kind of... uh, act was a retaliation against some other form of violence, um, which I, I think one of the things that could really help our discourse is to begin to, again, narrow the definition of violence. Um, and there, there are a lot of wrong things that happen in the world that are wrong, but are not violence. Yeah. Guys, I think one of the main messages, and we got we to gotta switch to the, to the topic that's related to this. One of the main messages that we're sending is watch your words. We don't know exactly how that played into this, but words matter. And so if we're always using the most provocative words, the end campaign talks about being artful with our, your words, but using the most provocative words to get your point across is not artful. And in many cases, it can be harmful to the conversation. So we have this uh, natural shooting, right? And then on March 30th, a few days later, in response to that shooting, hundreds of protesters came to the Tennessee state capitol to advocate for gun control laws. Okay, Um, the protesters stood in the hallway and then they entered into the House chambers, chanting and disrupting proceedings. Representatives uh, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson and Gloria Johnson joined in the into the protest. the this eventually kind of brought the house proceedings to a halt. They were asked to leave. They didn't leave. It became a, a big issue. 
Initially, because of their participation in the protest, Jones and Johnson, so one of the young black males and the white lady, were stripped of their committee assignments. Now, my understanding is that Pearson didn't yet have an assignment, and so he wasn't stripped of anything at that point. Then on April 3rd, uh, Republicans introduced a motion to expel the group who then became known as the Tennessee Three. Uh, there was a hearing uh, where, in my opinion, there were some compelling speeches given by the Justins, but Jones, but only Jones and Pearson were expelled. OK, Jones and Pearson being young black men, Johnson being an older white lady, I think maybe in her 50s or 60s, was not expelled. All right. Now, Johnson, once this happened, comes out and suggests that she was not expelled because she was white and the other two were expelled because they were black. It's interesting. So just to get to, to the specifics, she avoided expulsion by one vote. Right. So most of the people who voted for the expulsion of Pearson and Jones voted for her expulsion, except maybe three or four people. OK, so, yeah, they, they received probably maybe, you know, for a few more votes, maybe four more votes than she did uh, to avoid avoid expulsion. The people who one of the guys who voted for the expulsion of the two men and not for hers said it was because she wasn't as involved in the actual protest as they were. Right. That she wasn't using a bullhorn and some other things that he mentioned. I'm not saying that to say that this expulsion is cool. I'm just giving you all the information. You be the judge on whether you agree with his explanation or not. OK, but that that's what they're saying. One side saying it was about race. Someone else who who voted differently on the two, you know, uh, on the three says it wasn't about what race. Um, the next question I think that a lot of people are wondering is how did you get all the way to expulsion? I mean, I don't understand. And, and I, I, you know, I did an interview with the Washington Post and spoke out on this. Expulsion is an extreme measure. Right. In fact, my understanding is, Chris, that expulsion has only been used eight times in Tennessee history when it comes to the House of Representatives. Six of those times were Confederates who refused to recognize the citizenship of black people who had formerly been enslaved. One of the other, one of the times was was for bribery. And then the other time was for sexual misconduct. Now, I think a lot of people might say based on the disturbance, a censure might have been proper, right? To say, okay, we we're going to censure you. We're going to say you were wrong or whatever. They broke the rules. And when you know, look, part of civil disobedience is knowing that there's consequences and being willing to take on those consequences. Okay. So a censure seems like if you need to do anything, seems like it would have might have made sense or more people would at least said, okay, that's cool. Because to me, Chris, in a constitutional Republic, you don't expel a duly elected representative except in extreme cases and in a peaceful protest, even though it was loud, does not satisfy that condition. And that's why I think, Chris, this was undemocratic, but not only undemocratic, strategically, it was incredibly short sighted and thoughtless. Strategically, it was a terrible mistake, right? Because what they did as these young men were, you know, using their right to to civil disobedience, they created martyrs who 
were guaranteed to come back to the legislature within weeks or days anyway. So one of them has already been voted back into the legislature. So you kick folks out, you make this big deal about it, and they're only coming back with a bigger platform and a, a, a louder microphone, right, nationwide. So I don't know what the Republicans were thinking. It's my understanding that this was a House Republicans thing, that the folks in the Senate and uh, not necessarily even everybody in the governor's office agreed with this. Some folks might have even told them not to do it. But they went for it and did it anyway. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the House being less sophisticated than the other, you know, than the other branches. And uh, they seem to and I don't that's not always the case. But I think in this instance, they seem to have shown there might be something to that in some cases. But go ahead, Chris. I mean, this this was a I mean, this has taken over the conversation, maybe even more than the initial issue, um, which, you know, we can you, you know, you guys can be the judge if that's a good thing or not. Um, but that just didn't make any sense to me to expel these folks, um, under the circumstances, but go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I don't want to make this like a recitation of all the things that you just said, but it, I think you, you hit a lot of the salient points. You know, it, it, it seems like there is this thing, uh, in our discourse where, nobody's ever going to try to calm down, you know, because part of the way that I think the House Republicans in Tennessee arrive at this uh, expulsion conclusion is trying to do this sort of apples to apples thing uh, with January 6th. So, you know, if January 6th is this huge big deal, then these particular people storming onto the, the House floor and coming into the well you know, is a huge big deal. Uh, now, I am not saying that this is apples to apples. I do not think that this uh, is the same as far as I know. Uh, these protesters did not break windows. Nobody had any nooses. Nobody was saying uh, to hang particular members uh, of the body. So I, I don't think that this was, this, this was not the same. But, and I would say that we're talking about the representatives, not the other people who were in there, right? So right. like these were representatives that were supposed to be in the world. supposed to be in I could be wrong on this. I do think other folks from the protest came in, came into the well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about the but the folks who punishment, were the punishment was you know when we're talking about yeah. the punishment we're talking about the representative. Yeah. So that, so that, you know and you know if 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 you were saying that these folks had led a January 6th style event and so we're going to expel them, you know. Still don't know where you're getting. I think expulsion is just an extreme, extreme thing to do in a democracy because we are a democracy. These folks were elected by the by the residents, the citizens of their districts, uh, and I think in a democracy, those citizens get to say who represents them in the legislature. Because if if we can kick people out of the legislature just because they believe something different from what we believe, even though what they believe represents what their constituents uh, want represented in the legislature, uh, that that really erodes our democracy. So from a technical standpoint, though, you know, it's it's well within the Republicans purview, right? It's in the it's in the rules. You can get the votes. You can kick anybody out of the legislature that you want to. Um, and so, you know, it, it plays itself out. But as you as you pointed out, it was just not a smart thing to do because it's going to play out. These guys are going to come back to the legislature 
you you know that one representative i saw some of those statements you will suggest that this was not about race but on its face it certainly looks like it was about race you know and that's part of what you have to deal with in politics is not just the substance of what's in your heart because people can't really know that you also have to look you have to deal with what it looks like on its face it looks like it was about race um these guys are going to be reappointed to the legislature uh, you probably just guaranteed their re-election um for a long time to that legislature and maybe higher bodies and positions if they you know if they want to i'm sure uh these two gentlemen now will have uh, a much more successful call time uh, the next time they run for uh, office. So, you know, if you if if the goal was to try to accomplish, you know, some kind of a punishment for them, this was just such a dumb thing to do. I don't know if they thought these guys were going to be like, oh, they kicked us out the legislature, and like go home and. I don't know, like cry about it or something. I, like, I mean, we live in such a fast-moving media environment, social media environment. These gentlemen obviously believe deeply in the cause that they were, you know, working toward. They did indeed join a protest and come uh, into, you know, the 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 house chambers. And so, I, I just think that two things we need to like ratchet down this kind of like one up thing where everybody's trying to always one up the next person. If we're going to stabilize our discourse and our democracy, somebody has got to be able to start to step it down and sort of be the adult in the room, if you will. And, and two, I think that on really on both sides of the aisle, but I, I don't want to do a both sides thing. Cause we're talking about this specific thing, but it really seems like nobody's at the wheel. Like, not only are, are you not helping the broader discourse and, and that kind of thing, which should, I think, be a goal, you're not even advancing your cause. Like, you probably made gun control, which I would say is still not super likely in the state of Tennessee, but you probably made it more likely today than it was two weeks ago. You made national figures out of, you know, the two youngest members of the Tennessee state house of representatives and so you, you haven't achieved your like you, you you haven't achieved your policy goals you've you've injured your uh policy agenda um and so part of it i think in terms of ratcheting down the rhetoric is getting people in the room who are more concerned about more dedicated to the policy objectives than sort of like winning today's fight. Yeah, no, that that's real. I mean, the the way they've discredited themselves in that in that um house, you know, in the Republican side of the house is just, you know, that that's going to be hard to wash off over a long time a long period of time. Um just didn't make any sense. Where was the leadership? Where was the person say, "Hold up. I'm the leader of this. Y'all calm down. Let's think this through." Right. Because not only is it does it lack principle if we're supposed to be patriots and care about this republic. Number two, it's unwise. It doesn't make any political sense whatsoever. Um, but here's the caution that I would have for other people outside of maybe people like us, people who are who have been Democrats or independents or whatever. Be slow to to take this this one instance, which was ridiculous and 
place it on all people on the right. Because a lot of the folks that I've heard talk about this on the right, outside of, you know, a lot of the the more um, intellectually honest folks, the more thoughtful folks that said this was re- completely ridiculous. And there are people in Tennessee, in the Republican Party, who have said this was completely ridiculous, who thought they should not have done it. So they did it. They deserved to, to deal with it. But I'd be slow to assume that everybody on the right thinks this is OK because they don't. And that's one of the things that we have to be able to do. We loved. I mean, if I just want to be about partisanship and my narrative, this is the perfect opportunity to ratchet up, show Republicans are ridiculous, all of them and move forward in that way. If we want to heal what's going on, I want to lift up the voices on that side. I know Eric Erickson said something about this being he he didn't go so far as to say that that they were completely wrong for it, but he said it was unwise, which he, that's not enough for me. But at least people see like this. Come on, this is going too far. The racial element. Be slow to put this on everybody. Hear what people got to say, but just know that there are people out there too that said we would have never done this. I don't think that happens in in Georgia, and I got a lot of issues with folks with, with the Republicans in Georgia. I don't think that happens in the same way because of some of the leadership. And in fact, similar things have happened and it didn't end that way. So just be slow to kind of impugn that on on everybody. But we got to get out of this segment. It's been an extra long segment. We got other stuff to talk about. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. We are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Um, Wish we had better things to talk about uh, today, but um, there was a shooting yesterday um, in Louisville. Apparently, a former worker at a bank went in, and I think is it five people that lost their lives or something like that. Chris um, went in and 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 started shooting. We don't. I don't have right now a whole lot of details, but I do want to take this time to ask for again the prayers for. Louisville prayers for this nation, which once again, there is this spirit of violence. Right. We've talked about the guns. We talked about the policy. That doesn't mean they have to be used in that way. That doesn't mean that when I get fired or somebody slighted me or somebody doesn't agree with me, I kill women and children and don't care who it is. That's a spiritual issue uh, that really needs to be dealt with. 
Uh, but go ahead, Chris, and speak into that. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just, I mean, we just did a long segment about the policy stuff. I would just urge us to continue to pray, uh, pray for the, that particular community um, and the families there. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're listening to this and you're on an intercessory ministry uh, or something like that, just add this, uh, if it's not already uh, in your uh, sort of prayer focus, add these uh, prayers for our nation. We really need to be into that right now. Man. Yeah, that's uh, so true. So on to another subject, uh, not really a brighter subject, but not as um, morbid, I guess. Um, According to the Associated uh, Press, Chris, classified Pentagon documents were leaked and placed on the Internet earlier this week. Uh, More than 50 of those leaked documents were top secret, which is the highest level of classification. The leaked documents were related to the Ukraine war And it's being said that they present a very serious risk to national security and senior leaders are are quickly taking steps to mitigate the damage. Uh, This all comes from a top Pentagon spokesman on Monday. All right. Now, as far as what was specifically in the documents or what they exposed was uh, spying. Uh, So the documents talked about American spy, um, uh, American spying, not just on our foes, but even on some of our allies. And I think this included uh, Israel, South Korea, and Ukraine. Uh, They showed that the casualty numbers um, may have been reported as lower to the American people than they actually are. Uh, So that's become another conversation. And then it showed, you know, it, it has, it could have repercussions for the war because it showed where Ukraine, it showed kind of Ukraine troop movements and their training schedules. Uh, So this is no small thing. Now, this has been a long debate, right? There are kind of two positions when it comes to leaks like this. I think both positions realize that these leaks are illegal, right? Um, So this should not happen. And I think both sides get that. But one side says that once something is leaked, that information should not really be used, right? Like uh, it tells too much. It tells our enemies, how to collect intel, how it tells our enemies, how we collect intelligence. Uh, it points to the sources and the methods of how we get the information. And so if you don't really report on it and use it, then you don't give people incentive to leak it. Others would say that, yes, it's illegal, but that it should be used because it's there and you can't pretend it's not there. And the, American government has been lying about a lot of things. And so a lot of people would point to Iraq and say, yeah, we don't want these leaks to happen. But when they happen, journalists need to report on it because the information is now there and they can't act like it's not there. So that's been the whole debate surrounding like Julian Assange and others. Um, when you find something of that's of, of kind of illegal activity by the government or others going on, should that be reported? How should it be reported? And how should the person that exposed it be treated? Uh, what are your thoughts on this particular issue, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there is a community of people who are right now uh, really trying to focus everybody's attention on the fact of the leak um, and the, the kind of method through which this information came to the fore. Uh, but I think that it is really important to focus on the content because at, at some level, if our government weren't proactively misinforming 
you know the public this wouldn't be as salacious a leak uh the the reason it's so salacious is because there are things that um you know have been presented in one way and it is now coming to light that that was just not true and so what you would have to argue to say you know, let's focus all of our attention on the fact of the leak and the method through which this information came out. You're really suggesting that people within the government, which is a government that is of and formed by the people that works, uh, I still believe that this is, is like a serious and meaningful thing in the United States. This government works for uh, the citizenry, right? Like we, we do not have... Uh, a system of government where these government leaders are our uh, overlords uh, or, you know, kings. And so you don't get to just do whatever you want to do, uh, you know, say whatever you want to say, even if it's not true, and do it with complete impunity. And especially once it comes out, we have to contend with the content. Um, so I'm I'm, I'm squarely in, in that camp, you know, not to say that, you know, we should have leaks all over the the government i think that you know you have to do your work and try to make you know do what you can to try to make sure that doesn't happen but the 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 best way i think to manage this is to be honest and upfront with the american people um and so then if something does leak it's not quite so salacious because it's not the complete opposite of what you've been telling everybody yeah, and that's been the conundrum. So many lies have been told, lies have been told, and they have re- resulted in people's losing their lives, right? Um, and so people are saying it would be great if we could trust the government enough to never have to worry about this stuff. But when it exposes massive lies and uh, crimes, what do you just say? And and I do think it is very hard. I see the other side. I think it is very hard just to ignore for journalists to ignore that the leak ever happened. Um. The idea that it's not going to somehow get out or that your allies and enemies aren't going to hear about it. Once it's leaked, it's it's leaked. I think you fight that on the other end. You try to prevent the leaks. I don't think you can control in a free in a free press, you know, know what they should do. And I, I don't know if people are trying to control it, but but it, but just saying, you know, what the ethics around it should be is a conversation that, you know, needs to be had. Now, I want to you know, we talked about this before in other episodes, but just so you guys know. The general rule about government documents is that government documents belong to the people. That's why we have, you know, open records and, um, you know, was it Freedom of um, Information Act and things like that? Yeah, FOIA. Government, the government is for the people, right? So government documents belong to the people. However, there are certain exceptions that says, hey, the government might need to keep certain documents confidential or top secret in order to do their job properly. There are some things that they can't announce that they need to do, especially when it comes to war and things like that, prior to. It's not an easy balance, but I do want people to know, generally, yes, documents belong to the people and you have a right to see the documents locally, on a state level, and also on a federal level, those documents as a taxpayer, as a citizen, belong to you because the government is serving the people. A lot of people don't know that, but that's very important to know. So keeping these secret, keeping those confidential is an exception to the general rule uh, within our country. 
Anything else on that, Chris? Yeah, I, I would just say because documents in general belong to the people, one of the things that continues to come out of this, and I think it, you know, we had some conversation about this with, you know, the classified documents that, you know, it seems like everybody, you know, who's been around them has kind of like their own stash. Um, but it, it also leads to a conversation of, do we have a habit inside the government of overclassifying uh, documents? Um, and I, I, I just think that's the case. I, I still believe in democracy. And I think that if there are these kind of significant geopolitical decisions being made um, inside the United States, we're stronger if they are being made in a deliberative fashion um, where there is debate and people are aware and folks get to weigh in, uh, you know, with members of the government, their, you know, elected officials, if they so choose, rather than just having the small group of folks who think that they know uh, everything because, you know, they went to fancy schools and they had the fancy jobs and titles. And they're just going to like make those decisions and have no public debate. I think that's anti-democratic and, um, it just shouldn't it shouldn't go that way. Yeah, man. So keep your eyes on this, guys. Obviously, again, it is illegal. It's not something that we want to happen because we would acknowledge that the government does need to keep certain things secret to do their job. But when you over and we're not I don't think Chris is even saying that in this case, it was documents that shouldn't have been confidential. I don't know that you're making that argument, but it, it, it does happen. So something to pay attention uh, to and just our way of kind of educating you on how this thing works. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with some bad news, at least from my perspective. I am disappointed to announce, uh, some of you may know that the Democratic National Convention, they were looking to see which city was going to host it. Um, And Georgia, um, by far, was the best uh, prepared, was the best option. And sadly, sadly, they chose Illinois. Now, don't ask me why they would make such a terrible decision. Um, Not only is Georgia a better place to go to, but Georgia is, you would imagine, a state that they would want to turn completely blue, whereas you can pretty much tell take Illinois for granted um, that they're going to go with uh, the Democrats. So terrible decision. I mean, that's the opinion of this this podcast. <laughs> and uh, I'm just this disappointed to hear that that happened. But go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Why is this a, such a terrible decision? Uh, no, this is, they, they made a, a, uh, a very reasonable call, you know. Chicago for for I mean honestly for better or for worse you know Chicago has been uh, a solid democratic city and you know we know how to put on a good convention and we just had a big election where you know the the most left candidate won so we we put down you know more and I I I think it also has to do with um, you guys have to elect a billionaire governor. Um, and a billionaire you know, Democrat goes, right? yeah, you know, who can, you know, write some nice checks to, to candidates and, and to the party. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I thought that for a minute, I did think Atlanta was going to get chosen, but at the end of the day, 
you knew it was the best choice. But go ahead, finish. I don't, I don't know if it was the if it was the best choice. I mean, I, I think if I was in the DNC, I would be thinking about flipping Georgia. Like, I, I honestly, you know. I mean, you have to say Chicago, so whatever. We'll, we'll know, just, we'll they're, just... they're looking at all the members. You, know, you, you, you come in Chicago, like you think about the Obama campaign, right? Like uh, Iowa, the Iowa operation was a lot of Chicago people, right? So you get in Chicago uh, and you can hit Michigan, you can hit uh, Wisconsin, you can hit uh, Minnesota, all from this operation, just like with, uh, you know, everything else. We're, we're right in the heart of things. So more bang for your buck. Yeah, I'm unconvinced, but uh, who who knows what happened, man? We actually weren't even, this wasn't even on the schedule for us to talk about it. It just happened. Yeah, they just announced it. So it was breaking news as we were talking and, and taking a little break in between segments. So that is what it is. But I want to talk a little bit about this major event that the end campaign has coming up Thursday, April 13th. That's this Thursday, okay? See, this might be bigger, Justin, than the DNC. I think this is, of action. this is bigger. This is very much bigger. Um, last time I was at the DNC, I almost threw up <laughs> based, on the, based on some of the rhetoric. So maybe it's better that it's, it's not here. But 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 on a, on a different note, we talk about this all the time. But this is a critical moment in the American church's public witness. Many of you know that and many of you care a great deal about that fact. Um, and that's why you listen to this po- this podcast. Right. You believe that Christians can and must do better in the public square. You recognize the failings. You're not turning a blind eye to it. And you're disappointed by the options that are on the table. And you want things to change. And you think Christians need to have a hand in changing it. Well, the end campaign has done our best to articulate that frustration, but not just to articulate the frustration to provide a biblical framework for addressing it and to provide some hope around doing that, why we can make these changes. Because if we truly have a risen savior, if we have blessed assurance and a deep abiding faith, the way that we talk uh, about, then that has to mean something in how we approach politics. Then that has to mean that we can't just be your everyday died in the wool Democrat or Republican. It has to mean something. It has to mean that there's some distinction between us and the, and the world and how we go about doing politics. That has to mean something in how we interact with our neighbors and how we view and wield our power. But in too many instances, when it comes to the Christian public witness, it doesn't seem to mean that. I wouldn't go so far as saying sometimes, Chris, Chris, Christian politics displays a lack of belief, a lack of faith in the things that I just named, a lack of belief in really having the ultimate victory. And that these temporal things, not that they don't matter, but we understand that they're not ultimate. But too many Christians in politics seem to have placed their faith in secular activism and belligerent leaders, and political parties. How do we go about changing that? Well, those of you who are familiar with the AND campaign, you understand our answer. Those of you who have read Compassion and Conviction, those of you who have been listening to the Church Politics Podcast for a long time. And a very special moment in 
the existence of the and campaign is coming up. When we started this, uh, we might have been known locally. We might, you know, there might have been a few people who knew us, but in general, myself, Show Baraka was was known, um, Angel Maldonado, Chris coming on just a little later, weren't people who had national recognition who were being set up to do this. In in many ways, Chris, and you tell me if I'm wrong, we got it out the mud. We were God blessed us. God gave us a, a vision and we scraped and did all that we could to get in the position where we do have a little more recognition. So glory be to God on that. But to be at a place with this heirs of action event where faith leaders like Bishop Claude Alexander, Dr. Cynthia Hale, uh, Bishop Timothy Clark, uh, Chris Bouchard, uh, Benjamin Watson. Um, so many other names are saying we bless, you know, we're giving the blessing to this organization because we trust its veracity. We trust its integrity to speak on behalf of our perspective in the public square. For me, thinking about how this started, thinking about the frustrations, thinking about all the uh, times that you just could be discouraged means so much. But also that in the legacy of the civil rights era, just in general, kind of reiterates the responsibility that we do have to maintain that veracity, uh, to maintain that integrity, to approach this in a way that glorifies God. Now, you and me both know, Chris, that we're not going to be perfect. We haven't been perfect this far. We get things wrong. We try to do our best to acknowledge when we get them wrong. It's not about that. It's not that we represent every 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 Christian or that we're um, doing things that no nobody else could possibly do. But it does mean a lot to see that we are serving the church in an effective way and are representing something and articulating something that means a lot to others. So I'm going to hand it to Chris, but I'm just going to say this. If you are anywhere near Atlanta... If you appreciate the Ann campaign's work, uh, if you've been riding with, with us for a long time or a short amount of time, do your best to make it to the Heirs of Action event this Thursday, 7 o'clock at Ray of Hope Church. If you can make it, be there. If you at all can put it on your calendar, if you got to leave practice early or do something else early, think about doing that because this is going to be a night of praise, worship, but also a civic vision for the next step for the and campaign, which again is being endorsed by some people who have all kinds of uh, sweat equity in the social justice space, in the political space, on a national level, on a local level. But go just go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'll pick up there urging people to come uh, to this because it is not um it's not just us, right? Like this is not just about you coming and, and watching this happen. I think it's really important uh, that the folks who listen to this podcast and support the end campaign uh, in a number of ways, you really have to know and embrace uh, the reality that the end campaign would not be as effective as it is uh, without you. Right. Um, this is not just uh you know, Justin and me and show and angel and uh, whoever else you might think of when you think of the end campaign. Uh, this is so many people and 
that includes you. This is every person who opens emails or uh, writes letters, signs statements, listens to the podcast, shares the podcast. All that stuff is important uh, to growing this movement. And that's why I think uh, you really want to come because this is, uh, I think, an urgent time in our politics and in our civic discourse. Um, If I had to make an assessment, and I think a lot of folks who listen to this would agree, we're sort of in a downward spiral, um, and we have these sort of polarized and entrenched uh, sort of tribes that are driving that spiral. And the way it begins to shift is that somebody's got to do something different. And for us to have more impact as we enter these, uh, what I think are very critical years uh, in the United States, is really important uh, that folks who share this perspective, um, because I've, I've enjoyed being a part of the AIM campaign and being on this podcast and uh, different things, because not only do we get to share, we also get to learn from, from you all. We get to, we see your, your messages on social media, those who support us on Patreon. Uh, we, we learn from it. We're also encouraged to know that there are people all over the country who share the, the perspective. Uh, but the way we have measurable impact is that we act together, uh, that we speak in unison, um, that we collectively make the argument uh, to those who are yet unconvinced, and that we continue to grow the movement. And so that's what Airs of Action really presents us an opportunity to do, uh, is to grow our movement. And uh, those who are not our movement, like the two guys hosting this podcast, this is all of us uh, a part of this movement. And so uh, I really urge you, if you're anywhere close uh, to Atlanta, if you can make it there at all, to be there with us on uh, on Thursday. Yeah, and keep listening to the show. Keep liking and sharing our stuff on social media. But what we're saying is, you know, that's not enough. Right. Uh, We want you to keep sharing. People let them know what we're trying to do. But we need you to show up too, Right. So whether it's starting chapters in your area, participating in the chapter in your area, everybody can give commentary and talk about how things are going wrong. Everybody can go to, you know, do the things that are fancy and show up on social media. Can we do the things that are long lasting and show the commitment to, to to really drive this further? Because a big problem, I mean, we can complain, but a big part of the problem is the people on the extremes are just more committed. Mm-hmm. More active. They're just more committed. They're just more passionate about what they're talking about. So you can be mad at them about that or you can match that passion with something that's more constructive. And that's what the AND campaign has been trying to give people on ramps to do. We can't do that without resources. We can't do that without you showing your support and showing up. And that's what we're asking you to do. So if you're anywhere near it, 7 o'clock this Thursday, Ray of Hope Church in Atlanta, come holler at us, man. We're we're trying to grow. This is a major accomplishment. Uh, Wouldn't happen without you guys. Certainly wouldn't happen without... Um, a lot of prayer, a lot of folks just, you know, uh, looking out for us, helping us out when we didn't have it. And we appreciate all of you. All right. Well, you know how it ends. And camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ until next time, Ann Kemp. I'll let you. Dear Lord.